This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. On last week's episode of Anchored, I sat down with Tom Brown III to ask him about his philosophies and stalking tactics. This week, he and I continue our conversation, plus we discuss footwear, fire starting, foraging, tanning hides, and more. Thank you so much for meeting me in Seattle. <laughs> the last, Not a problem. Last time I saw you, we were in Oregon, and it was a frantic rush to get off to my next interview. And we literally didn't even scratch yeah. the surface. So you very kindly agreed to meet <laughs> me in Seattle. We are in a t- tattoo parlor. The acoustics are a little off, but um, I promise you it's better than doing it on the phone. <laughs> Tom and I tried to sit down to do this on the phone for all of you, and I'm just really bad with this tech stuff. Me too. <laughs> I offered very little to no advice. <laughs> no, you're great because you met me here. So we're just going to go ahead and get started. So when we left off, you and I were talking about um, mm-hmm. how our feet communicate to our brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of footwear do you wear? That's a really good question. First, what I'll do is I'll, I'll give you some general things that I look for in a good piece of footwear without going into any specific brands, and then you know we can touch on brands later. So what qualifies as a good shoe to me? Uh, if you recall, when we kind of originally started talking about this stuff, I talked about how the raised heel on a lot of our modern footwear uh, is horrible. Not only is it a horrible design for our bodies, it completely interrupts the way we're supposed to move. But remember also what I said, that the more padding is on our feet, 
our, our subconscious mind causes us to stamp our feet and be really loud. So not only does it not offer the protection that it supposedly does, but it also makes us really loud. So some general things I look for in a good footwear, first and foremost, is a thin flat sole. So uh, same thickness all the way throughout, something that's not you know, so incredibly thick that you can't feel anything, but also does not have the raised heel. The raised heel is the real killer. Remember how I said that modern humans kind of keep their center of gravity in their head and they throw their head forward? Well, when we're standing with heeled shoes and our heels are raised up, we're, we're naturally already kind of facing into that controlled forward fall that is modern humans' movement. So, yeah, so by getting rid of the raised heel, that's, that's a crucial one. So, yeah, so we have a nice thin sole that's flat that we can, you know, still relatively well feel what we're stepping on. Also, the upper of the shoe, the top part of the shoe, you also want something that's got some flex to it. Now, you know, I used to always laugh. You know, I, I teach a lot of winter survival classes, and average winter day in the East Coast is 35, 40 degrees. So you'd get uh, a guy show up for a winter class, and in his Cabela's Iditarod boots, which are rated to negative 149 degrees. And he'd be sitting around a campfire in 40 degree weather complaining that his feet are cold. Now, the reason why the feet are cold is that, you know, modern footwear essentially acts like a coffin for our foot. Not only does it cut us off from what we're stepping on or walking on, but it also restricts blood flow to our foot. So you would be surprised if you just have a shoe that's nice and flexible that allows your foot to move and bend and flex the way it was designed to, that will keep your foot a lot warmer than any amount of insulation will. Now, obviously, there are certain instances where insulation is important, you know, if you're snowshoeing or in super cold weather. And there are ways around that. Um, you know, one company I highly recommend to people is Steger Mucklucks and Moxins. They're based out of Ely, Minnesota. And they're basically made traditionally the way the, the native peoples of the, of the region made, made their Mucklucks. So they're typically all moose hide or moose hide bottoms and canvas uppers. They have a really thin kind of crepe rubber sole and they have a felted wool boot that goes inside. So they're relatively thin compared to what you would think of as a winter boot, but because your foot can move and bend and flex the way it was designed to, your foot stays nice and full of blood and therefore stays warm. So yeah, a lot of our modern boots, especially winter boots, they, they don't really do the job of keeping our feet warm because they literally constrict all of the blood out of our feet. What happens when they get wet? So that's a good question. So the cool thing about Steggers, they make a few waterproof variants, but typically mucklucks are meant to be worn where it's cold enough, where you're not necessarily sloshing around in the water, but snow does not stick to them when you kind of maintain a colder temperature. The snow just kind of sloughs off the outside. And they also do make like silicone spray for them and all that stuff. So that's my favorite kind of like hardcore winter footwear that I, that I typically wear when I'm hunting. In the last 10 years or so, footwear companies have really started to recognize that a lot of footwear they've been producing is really bad for our bodies. So you're seeing a revolution in kind of barefoot shoes nowadays. Pretty much every major shoe manufacturer now has... Uh, it's either called a minimalist shoe design or a barefoot design that kind of adheres to the criteria I talked about. So there, there is a lot more available to us. A few years back, I had a, an orthopedic surgeon come through some classes, and he showed me some interesting documentation. They, somebody did a study once. They compared the foot bones of skeletons found in Europe you know, 20,000 years ago 
and compared the, the foot bone structure of those ancient ancestors to modern Europeans. And they found that the modern Europeans' feet were almost literally deformed and not as the foot bones were deformed and not as well defined from years of wedging them into these super tight constrictive things. You know, if you ever look at like a toe box on a shoe, it's kind of pointed, right? Our feet aren't pointed. They're kind of squared at the end. So when we jam our foot in there, you notice like toe might go over your, your toes essentially get scrunched up and it just years and years and years of, of wearing footwear like that, it changes the shape of our feet. Not only that, but it doesn't allow the muscles in our feet to develop the way they were designed to. And, you know, I've spent long periods of time in bare feet. You know, people ask me all the time, well, well you got to wear shoes. You're going to, you're going to cut your feet. And yeah. You know, if you're moving way too fast or doing something dumb, you could cut your feet. But I will tell you this from experience, your feet get incredibly tough the more time you spend barefoot. They really do. I look at uh, my husband and he doesn't wear shoes ever. He can walk across anything. Yep. And he always tells me, oh, you've got to roughen up those feet. You know, you're way too soft. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, so that's how they did it back then. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it's always been the, the whole stalking and moving thing, as I said on our first meeting, has always been really fascinating to me and something I'm really passionate about. But yeah, I'm really thankful to see the, the kind of change in, in footwear. Uh, a really good book I'll recommend you read. I can't think of the author's name off the top of my head. I think his name is McDougal, and he wrote a book called Born to Run, and it's about the Tarahumara people in the Copper Canyon region of Mexico. And these are the peoples that are famous for their ability to run hundreds of miles without stopping. So this guy, the author, lifelong runner, always wanted to be a marathoner, and he would train and train and train, and he would get to the point where he could run like 10 or 15 miles, and then he would inevitably injure himself. So he was on a flight one day, and he opened a National Geographic, and there was a article about the Taramara people who live in the, the Copper Canyon region. He was amazed in reading this article about how, you know, everybody from the kids to the elders were able to run really great distances. So... Uh, he decided he was going to go seek these people out and learn their style of running. And so the Taramara people became really famous for being able to run long distances. And every so often, they would host these kind of ultra marathons down there. And all these, you know, really well-known Western ultra marathon runners would go down there and compete against the Taramara. And the one story that always I always got a kick out of is they you know started this 150 mile race everybody starts you know the the natives and the the westerners start this run so the taramara actually gets so far ahead of the western runners and this is them essentially running in flip-flops made of old car tires oh my God. that they they stop on the side of the trail and smoke cigarettes and and not just like cigarettes like we know them like hand rolled cigars <laughs> and they sit there and smoke wait for the people to catch up who spend their lives running and are able to outrun them because the way they run is much more energy efficient than the way Western humans run. How's that? So when we apply some of these primitive techniques to running, what you find is that you're actually utilizing the mechanics of your body and your connective tissues to propel you forward as opposed to you putting energy into pushing yourself forward, if that makes any sense. So they've basically, through their culture and their lives, have conditioned their bodies so that their connective tissues do the work, whereas they're almost on autopilot. They're allowing their bodies, the springiness of their tendons and muscles, and this is just a kind of a very brief description, 
but they essentially expend no energy running. Like, you know, you think of a Western runner, they're huffing and puffing and breathing and putting everything they got into it. And that's not really how we're meant to run. Long distance running, you know, out of there, there are plenty of animals out there that are faster than us, tons of different animals that are faster, but human beings are by far and away the best distance runners out of any of the animal kingdom. Can I ask you something? And it's mm-hmm. embarrassing, um, but whatever. I'm going to ask you anyway. There have been a handful of times in my life, may- maybe two or three times, where I've been in the bush and I've had to run. Mm-hmm. And the craziest thing has happened in this handful of times. I'll be running with the- nothing in my mind. Mm-hmm. And like I don't focus. And... I feel like I'm actually flying. Like, you ever seen Twilight where they're like flying through the bush? And it was like there was no thoughts in my brain. My feet were just, I cannot explain it. My body was, it was, it was like an outer body experience. And is that a primitive thing? uh, I wouldn't say that's a primitive (coughs) thing. I would say that's a human thing. And that state. Uh, you know, you, you, that state is really common. You know, you hear athletes refer to it as being in the zone where you are just doing it thoughtlessly, you know, w- without hesitation. You're just performing whatever it is. Um, like and, landing your feet in certain mossy spots and yep. not even thinking about jumping over logs. Like it was the craziest thing. Yep. And that's, you know, tapping into that is a really incredible thing. And that's kind of tying back to the stalking and movement. You know, what I tell people first and foremost when they start on this journey of, of how to how to move this way is think of it as a moving meditation where you are your 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 cup is empty your mind is empty you're just allowing yourself to be guided by the landscape mm-hmm. and we have the ability to tap into that state for any number of things and that's kind of once again tying it all back to the book which we'll talk about soon is you know these these states that we can reach through the vehicle of nature, which is amazing. But yeah, so that that state where you're doing that, that's kind of your I don't want to say your primal self, but your most pure self, where you're doing things without thought or hesitation. You know, our, because, our, our, yeah. So no, I'm so sorry. It's just I'm so excited right now because as soon as I was like, oh, make sure you jump over that log, I lost it. Yeah. <laughs> so and I, and that really and that has always stuck with me that if I just don't think about it it works better. Exactly. Do you think that we, I mean, obviously we all have it as humans, like you said, it's not primitive, mm-hmm. but it's human. Is it just, as a matter of mind over matter? Yes. Uh, part of it. So part of it is, is mind over matter. Our conscious mind is at the same time, our greatest asset and our worst enemy. You know, we are what we think, you know, we talk about the, the subject of, of survival, you know, there's books out there. Uh, there's every chapter is a different horrific survival story of somebody surviving everything from being attacked by a bear to falling off a cruise ship. Uh, one common thing you will see throughout all those stories has nothing to do with the person's skill set. Has to do with their mental state. I'm not giving up. I can get through this. And that's the most important thing is not to panic when you're in those situations. And the people who are able to kind of quell that and look at their system objectively and make decisions based on that are much more likely to, to come through those situations than somebody who just freaks out. So that, that state is what I try to teach people to, to tap into uh, when they're moving through the woods. And it's especially important for hunting. 
So I talked, you know, our first visit, we talked about hunting and how I like to hunt on the ground. I like to get extremely, extremely close to animals. If you try to do that with any thoughts in your mind, you are going to fail, right? Animals have the ability to sense things other than what is picked up by their physical senses. That's why if you go into the woods saying, I'm going to kill a deer today, not only are you not, most likely not going to kill a deer, but you're probably not even going to see a freaking deer because that intent is being broadcast out there. A lot of uh, natives of this country didn't necessarily, a lot of native groups didn't have a word necessarily for hunting or killing because they recognize that the time, that the, the instant I go out with that intent, right, I'm setting myself up for failure. And so, so instead of, you know, and this is just off the top of my head, instead of saying, I'm going hunting, they would keep it benign and say something like, I'm going to take a walk with my arrows. So uh, the whole keeping your mind quiet is, is hugely important for blending into nature. You know? Do you think it relates to fishing, too? I mean, how many times have oh, you gone yeah. out with the intention to catch a fish? I mean, yeah. <laughs> we obviously go out with the intention, but mm-hmm. I always feel like when I'd be like, you know what, just no worries. If it happens, it happens. I had my best days. Do you, <laughs> do you actually think it's the same with like marine species? Uh, definitely. Really? I mean, like I said, I, I think that animals that still live kind of the way they were designed to have the ability to tap into things. And we have the ability to tap into them, but it's just been so atrophied because of our society and our, and our, and our modern lifestyle. Whereas those animals that still live kind of in their niche, uh, really still have the ability to tap into that. And, you know, I'll give you a, a good one to try out. You ever been standing at the edge of the field and you can see deer way off in the distance, right? Yeah. If you just kind of, vaguely glance over those deer and watch them, they won't even pay any mind. But then what you do next is you pick single one deer out and you tunnel your vision in on that deer and think, I'm going to kill that deer. And you'll watch that deer's head come right up and look around and get uncomfortable, walk into the woods. You have a pet dog or a cat, they're at home sleeping on the carpet. Focus all of your intent in, just stare at that dog or that cat, and eight out of ten times they'll wake up and look right at you. I do that with Colby because sometimes I, I wonder if he can. Oh my god, I'm, I'm really showing my true crazy here now. <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing it out of me. Um, I'll stare at him and be like, "I know that you hear me. <laughs> I know you hear me. Look at me. If you hear me, look at me." And he does. He looks up. Okay, so maybe it's not that we're connected as soulmates. Maybe it's just an animal thing. It, it? It is. <laughs> well, no, that and that's part of that too. But yeah, that, that's that's hugely important. You know our. Our, the intent we take with our daily life really affects the outcome of so many situations. That's why another thing I, you know, my, both my father and I tell our students, you'll hear the statement, empty your cup a lot. You know, if, you, if I have a cup that's completely full of water or anything, I can't add anything to that, right? Don't let knowing be a barrier to learning. Forget you have a past. Forget expectations. You know, when we enter any situation in life, with expectations, you know, we as modern humans, when those expectations aren't met, we feel let down or we feel disappointed. One thing I found is that if you try to be expectation free, you realize that there are all of these amazing teaching and learning moments happening around us at all times. But when we when we set off, when we're, you know, real point A to point B oriented, Right, we block out everything between point A and point B. We're so concerned about getting to that goal over there, and then we get to that goal, and we say, "Oh shit, where did all that time go? I just 
I missed a lot of things. So the journey is the important part, not the destination, if that makes any sense. So that's why I tell people, approach as many situations as you can without expectation and just let things play out the way they do. And you'll be very happily rewarded. Um, and then, you know, when you do have successes, when you, when you kind of change your thinking to that, uh, those parameters, then when you do have the successes with the, the, the thing you are going after, then it's that much better. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, okay. Let's, <laughs> it's time. Let's talk about your book. Ah, the book. Okay. You're writing a book and I can see why. Yeah. What is your book about? Hmm. You know, I wish I could tell you that. <laughs> okay. uh, no, I can't. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so what's my book about? That's a really good question. You know, in our first kind of meeting, I talked about my uh, the more, more checkered portions of my past and how when I kind of left a very nature-centric lifestyle and all of a sudden was, was forced to adapt to suburban life, I really went off the rails and struggled with addiction and all that sort of good stuff. And I also, uh, you know, said that when I really sat down and, and asked myself the reasons why that happened, you know, the thing I kept coming back to was my, uh, my disconnection from the natural world. And I think, you know, my existence to that point really illustrated that because, you know, I was incredibly connected to nature, all of a sudden, mostly disconnected. And I was able to make that correlation in my head. The fortunate part of that is now I'm able to write about those experiences in order to help people on their journeys of, of healing. And it's not going to be a book just about, you know, healing addiction or mental illness through nature. It's going to be about the kind of benefits of being connected to nature. So, you know, I was fortunate to have those two things to compare and contrast where I feel bad for a lot of people nowadays who never really knew a deep, visceral connection to the natural world and they're struggling and they don't know why they think, oh, you know, when I get that better job, that's when things are going to be great. Or when I get a new partner or when I get that car, or when I get that house, then things are going to be great. And then they get there and then they're like, whoa, uh, I'm still not good. Maybe, oh, maybe I need to go further. Maybe I need to get the next thing. Yeah, we and, need to retire. Yeah. And then yeah. before you know it, you're 70 and yeah. you still don't have it. Yeah. They, they, they spend their life chasing these things. And, uh, so yeah, my book is a little bit about that, just about how we can start to heal ourselves and, and fill some of those voids within ourselves, not only by spending time in nature, but it's also got the, the, the primitive skills aspect. And you know, I, I kind of briefly talked last time about why I really love primitive skills. Um, you know, a couple reasons are one, you know, there's something absolutely magical about making your own tools. There's something absolutely amazing about going out and gathering some sticks and carving them in a certain way and being able to create fire or grab a certain rock off the ground and make it into an arrowhead or tan an animal hide and make it into clothing. Uh, there's something magical about that that we don't experience with the things we use on a daily basis because they're all just reproduced in a factory. Everyone is like the one that came before it. Whereas when we make our tools, everything is a unique functional piece of art that is a part of you that you are using to enrich your own life. And there's something incredibly magical about that. The other thing I really love about primitive skills is that they are timeless. You know, we, we have computers now and we have phones and every year they come out with a newer model or a better model, whereas 
a lot of the skills I teach are at the height of their technology because they had been perfected over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So there's something just incredible about that is here's this tool that has remained unchanged for so long and it's not remained unchanged because people weren't working on it, but because it's perfect the way it is. And there's so much stuff that's not like that in our world. So yeah, there's, so there's, there's, there's something magical when we, when we learn to do these skills, when we learn to be a bit more self-sufficient, then when we tie that into being able to go out onto the, onto the landscape and have real relationships with the, the plants and animals uh, and trees that live there, that's a whole nother magical, magical part of it. Is all of a sudden you go from being this alien intruder on this landscape to knowing things, to knowing about that tree and what its edible and medicinal uses are, to know what types of plants I can, I can make cordage out of. And, oh, you know, I can make rope out of this plant, but I can also make a really good handrail stalk. And, oh, the flowers are also really good for... Uh, making in a tea to get rid of a cold. So you keep talking about all this stuff and all, I just want to add, like I literally want to dive into two hours of conversation on each of those subjects that you just mentioned. Um, for everyone else who's thinking the same thing, I will come back to lots of those things, by the way. Uh, continue. Yeah, so part of it is about my own struggles um, and kind of, I don't want to say conquering them, but managing, healthfully managing them. Part of it is talks about how, how we can integrate the kind of primitive living skills into that. And then I think the, the other part of the book is how we can be better citizens of the planet. I think we can all agree that we have not done the best job at taking care of the Earth, the only home that we have, the only planet we have access to at the moment. And if you look at the you know two plus million years of human history, just in the last 500 years, we have really mess things up. And if we are going to continue as a species to inhabit this place, uh, we definitely need to make some changes and we need to make them quick. And, you know, tying back to, to mental illness and unhappiness, you know, I, I've, I've been doing this a long time. I, you know, conservatively, I will say I've, I've taught 15 or 20,000 people, you know, in my life. And, I can't tell you how many times, how many letters and emails I've gotten from people saying, hey, you know, I just wanted to thank you because I was kind of at this place in my life where just nothing was right. Nothing felt right, no matter, you know, what job I had, this, that, the other thing. But when I came and took the class and just realized how much more is out there and things that I can do and learn to be more comfortable as a person, that really made me feel human again. You know, I've, I've gotten letters from people saying, you know, I was, I was, I was going to kill myself. And I kind of did this class as just kind of a, just grasping at anything to try to, to try to find something. And thank you so much. I mean, I, lots and lots and lots of letters. So, you know, as I said, what that, what that's illustrated to me over the years is that nature is an incredibly powerful thing in and of itself. And it has the ability to to help us. We just have to learn how to uh, exist <laughs> within it. Yeah, I think about that all the time, you know. Human beings were not put on this planet to be depressed. Like, they were put on this planet to survive, I would imagine. We're animals, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, I really do, and again, I'm not a, like a mental health expert at all. Me neither. <laughs> but I just can't help but wonder if depression and all of these, you know, this illness is because of 
Is it because we're so far removed as humans? Is it because of survival of the fittest? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, man, you know, it's if you boil it down, I, I truly believe that human beings... You know, our, where we are in the terms of evolution, we're the same as our ancestors from, you know, a long time ago. And we evolved to be Homo sapiens under the conditions of small nomadic groups. You know, agriculture is only 10, 15, 20,000 years old. And before that, everybody was, was hunting and gathering, moving around small groups, right? We only have the ability to maintain a certain amount of relationships in our life. And I think when we, we've so quickly gone from that existence to, you know, now we're sitting in Seattle where there's probably millions of people within a short, you know, we've never been around so many people, but been so alone. And, you know, we are taught to, we're meant to exist in those small groups and our family groups and our clan groups, whatever you want to call them, and not really have other relations outside of that. So when we're kind of around tons and tons of people we don't know, I think that slowly kind of chips away at us. You know, back to talking about the Taramara again, these are, you know, peoples who still live fairly close to land. They have, you know, some modern stuff. And not just them, but if you go to any kind of indigenous, a lot of indigenous societies around the world, there's no depression. There's no heart disease. There's no diabetes. There's very little to no cancer. So I think we get screwed in a lot of ways. One is the food that we're fed. The average person has access to is absolute poison. Pollution could, could play into that. But, but also, you know, just being disconnected. You know, there's, there's very little community or connectivity with humans anymore. You know, it's like I, I said in our first visit, you know, no other point in history, we, we all have devices in our pockets that have access to the whole of human knowledge. But we spend our time arguing with people and, you know, posting snide comments, the things we, we disagree on. So, yeah, I, I think it's just we've... Things have, have gotten too out of control too quickly. And I think all this stuff, the depression, all the stuff you see are just our, our side effects of that, of that kind of getting away. You know, I believe if we were put here for any reason, you know, what is the meaning of life? I truly believe that a couple things, that because we have advanced brains and the ability to learn and retain things, I, I believe that we're meant to always be learning. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that I, I like to study as much as I can about anything, any any subject. I, I can find anything fascinating. And to be stewards and caretakers of the earth. And not only of the earth, but our brothers and sisters, both the two-legged and the four-legged variety. So I think that that's as close as what I can figure out as, as what we're meant to do as people. And honestly, if you ask most people that, you know, do you try to learn something new all the time? And do you take care of nature and the people and the animals around you? 99% of people are going to look at you like you have four eyes. So People listening to this are like, well, no, I'm one of those people. And that's great. That's exactly why I love that you're listening because we can put those people in you know, and have access to them. But the reality is if you do go speak to the rest of the population, most people do exactly what you said. They're Mm going to glaze over and be like, what are you talking about? Where's the nearest steakhouse? (laughs) And then complain that their steak's not cooked right. It's It's crazy. It's no, if you want it to be made painfully obvious to you, go to, around here it sickens me. The other place I saw really bad was Florida, but you go to places where people go to do outdoor activities and it's just trash everywhere. 
I spend so much time in the mountains where I live just picking up people's trash. They come, they go camp for the weekend, they throw fucking trash everywhere, and then just leave it. That right there is just... If if that doesn't scream when you, when you're getting ready to throw some piece of plastic on the ground, if something doesn't scream at you saying that is not okay to do, then you are seriously disconnected from life itself. Uh, you know, and it, it, this pisses me off beyond belief. Do you think those sorts of people existed thousands of years ago, or however uh, many years ago we date back to? Or do you think that we've just created, I don't know, I always wonder if those people would have been killed off back then. Uh, I'm sure there's always been assholes, of course. Yeah, Um, for sure. Well, no, I don't, because if you talk about our existence in those times, there wasn't excesses and packaging and the stuff we have nowadays. When you made a tool, you used that tool until it was no longer usable. And then, most times, you recycled that into a different tool. You know, I love going to to natural history museums and going to, you know, the Aboriginal skills area. And it's like, it's got this thing. It's like, this is a, uh, you know, blah, 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 gardening tool. And I'm like, yeah, it's a gardening tool now, but you could tell it was a bow that somebody started and messed up. And it wasn't going to make a good bow, so they cut it in half and made a gardening implement out of it. Uh, Or if you also look at any tribal art from all over the world, the most simple of everyday items was often decorated to the umpteenth degree. It's because they knew they were taking a life to make a tool, right? A lot of primitive peoples believe that, you know, everything was alive, not just living things, but rocks and water. They were going to take a life to make a tool in order to make their life easier. They did so with the utmost reverence, respect, and thanksgiving to that being and to the ability to make that tool. And those things were, were cherished and, and used and nothing ever went to waste. And I think a lot of, you know, the pollution we see nowadays is just from the throwaway culture we live in. You know, there's just, you know, we have packaging for things and this, that, and the other thing. And it's just, it's, it's excess and people just don't, don't think about it. I really want to pick your brain about some of the things that you teach. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I totally have to backtrack. Like back in the day, what did they wear on their feet when they were in the river? I, as somebody who didn't own a pair of waders till I was in my teenage years, uh, I just went barefoot. And I would even, you'd be surprised at the, at the weather I would, or the water I would, I would wade in. I remember the first time I was ever going to go Great Lakes steelhead fishing in February. I went up there to a friend's house and just, I didn't even think about waders because I never really used them and he's like no we have to break through ice to stand in the in the river you're going to need waders so I, I went out and bought my first pair of waders but you know humans are incredibly adaptable creatures right we have the ability to adapt one of the reasons why we've spread so far and so wide is our adaptability if you read early explorers accounts of coming into contact with with peoples in the Americas you know they'd come upon a tribe and it'd be the dead of winter and they'd remark at how the people in the tribe really weren't wearing much clothes, right? That's because we have the ability to adapt. And all of a sudden, what may be cold to us one day, uh, you give yourself a couple days, and all of a sudden, it's not cold anymore. I, I think it really was wholly dependent on the situation. However, there were, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, northern tribes were pretty unique. You know, they had salmon skin raincoats and seal gut raincoats and all sorts of waterproof gear. Um, whether it was any traditional waders like we know them, probably not. I would think not. But no. they had they had lots of good technologies where they didn't have to get in the water. 
fishing, you know, pretty much the only reason we get in the river is because it makes the fishing that much more effective. Let's get right into talking about, um, this is so strange, I've never talked about this on the show, but it's something I think about all the time. How do I um, get, what's it called, is it tanning? Tanning, yeah. How do I do that? I, when I shot my deer, I went to do it myself yeah. and found out it's, it's actually not that easy. It's it's not it's not that it's not that easy. It's that it's uh, it's a pretty involved multi step process, and I'll definitely recommend a, a book to you as well. But Thank you. so basically, the, the the gist of it is when we remove the skin from an animal, there's several layers, and I can't think of them all off the top of my head. You know, there's the epidermis, dermis. There's a membrane layer. So with deer, the first thing you got to do when you skin a deer is you want to try to skin it in such a way to get. So you're not butchering the hide. If you take your deer to a butcher shop, what they usually do with hides is they tear them off as quickly as they can. Oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll cut them into two pieces. They just rip them off. They're not very delicate about it. And then they take those hides and they sell them to places that make work gloves. Deer skin is big for, for work gloves. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what you want to do first, you, you gently remove your hide from your deer. You want to try to skin the deer in such a way so that there's not a lot of meat and fat on the hide. Because the first step is called fleshing. And that's where I'm flipping my hide over a, a beam of some sort, a rounded surface that's you know sloping down away from me at an angle. And I use um, what's called a flesher, essentially. Modern, you can use an old lawnmower blade or a, or a draw knife, anything that you can get kind of a square edge on. And you just spend time sloughing off all those bits of meat and fat that are left. Deer, don't, they're not fur bearers, they have hair. So a lot of deer hide, you want to get the hair off. So the next step is you're going you're gonna to soak your hide in a bucket, in a pond or whatever, for a little while until the hair starts to fall out on its own. Okay, so this is so tanning is take this isn't making a rug. You're talking just the leather. No, I'm talking yeah, like making when you tan a deer skin right, it rivals the finest suede that you'll that you'll feel. What's, and I actually meant to bring a, a tanned hide with me today, but I was so tired this morning I, I forgot it. Understand. What's what's it called then when you leave this the hair so on? So that's uh so that's like fur tanning. So, okay, with, so it's with, still tanning. Yeah, it's still the same process. But see the thing, deer have hair, not fur. So you can tan a deer and leave the hair on. But it's just going to kind of fall out over time and get everywhere. It's not like a muskrat or a beaver or a mink that actually has has fur. Um, deer hairs are hollow; they're brittle. So I, I never really recommend to people to like tan a deer hair on because eventually it's all just going to fall out and get everywhere. So yeah, when you're tanning members of the deer species, typically all you know the fur was removed. So essentially, so you get all the the, and this is kind of just going through. Fairly quickly. Yeah, no, please so, do. You, so you soak it until all the hair pulls out or you can scrape it off again. Then you have to, uh, there's a layer, it's called like a membrane layer, which is, you know, skin, our, our skin and animal skin is basically layers built up on top of each other. So your goal as a tanner is to 
get it to where it's just the kind of the skin itself. So you get the hair off, you get the epidermis, the membrane off. Once you have all that stuff off, then you can either use uh, eggs or you can use brains. That's why they call it brain tanning. Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah, so it is true. Every animal has enough brains to tan its own hide. I thought they were kidding about this. This is a real thing. When you use eggs or brains, it's protein that essentially is conditioning the fibers of the hide. So you soak it in your brain solution or your egg solution, and then you spend a lot of time really stretching it out. And that's going to allow that the brain goo to get in the fibers and condition the fibers. And it, it, it conditions them in such a way. So like if I, if I were just to de-hair a deer hide and let it dry, it would turn into raw hide. You know, think of a dog toy. But when we take it to the next level and add the brains, it stretches the fibers out and that doesn't allow the fibers to shrink back again. So that's why really nice brain tan buckskin is really buttery soft like suede. Could you use any organs for that? Uh, so th- there's a bunch it? of different tanning from all over the world. There's bark tanning. There's urine tanning. There's all sorts of different things you can use. So anything with tannins in them can condition the hide to get it to that effect to where it's not going to just turn into a nasty piece of rawhide. Huh. Um, yeah, so all over the world, I, you know, I can't even think of how many different, innumerable amount of different trees you can use. Um, but yeah, typically it was done with, with the animal's brains because, as I said, every, <laughs> whether through accident or design, every animal has enough brains to tan its own hide. So then after we kind of rub the brains in it, as it's drying out, we're stretching it and pulling on it to keep those fibers stretched. Then the final step is smoking the hide, where we essentially smoke it in a fire like we would fish or meat. And what that smoking does is it penetrates those fibers and actually makes them water resistant. So smoked buckskin, it's not like a Gore-Tex or anything, but it will repel water and, and keep it from from turning back to rawhide, essentially. And that's in a very small nutshell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, It sounds really complicated. It is time-consuming, I will tell you that. I would say if you give me a just a raw deer hide right off a deer, because on some of the steps you have to soak the hide for a little bit to get the hair fall off. I would say total amount of working time per hide is probably three to five hours. Oh, that's um, not bad. Yeah, it's, it's not super bad. And then once you get into it and you're doing multiple hides, you can kind of do it cooking show style where you're like, oh, these hides I'm braining, these hides I'm scraping. Uh, my partner, Lisa, she does 10, 12, 14 hides at a time. What do you guys um, use, use them for? Uh, <laughs> you want to ask her that question. <laughs> she has a horde of tan deer hides that she's saving up to make a bunch of different clothing out of. Yeah, I've seen some of the most beautiful dresses, like deer hide Mm -hmm. dresses are amazing. So I've got friends who make, I mean, just some of the finest stuff, buckskin hoodies, and I had a friend who made her buckskin wedding dress. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing fabric. It's so soft. And it just amazes me that our ancestors figured that out. People always say, oh, it's amazing we have cell phones. No, the, the fact that somebody figured out how to turn a hairy bloody animal skin into like super soft tan hide or how to break a rock a certain way that stuff is amazing to me how do they do um fish scales i've seen fish leather that's always so, yeah. fascinating so actually uh fish hide tanning is is way easier there's not as many steps granted i'm new to the pacific northwest i haven't messed with salmon skin tanning much but my friends are really into it and essentially you just got to get the get the skin 
off the salmon and then you essentially just soak it in uh what they use around here is they use uh the inner bark of hemlock and just make a solution in water with that you just throw the skins in there let the tannic tannins soak in and then take them out and dry them and you've got fish leather that's so it. yep that's that's it Speaking about fish skins, I've read accounts from early explorers encountering natives that had shields and armor made out of tanned gar skin or sturgeon skin, and it's pretty pretty amazing stuff. When does the salting go into play with that? Yes. So the only time we use salt is if I'm trying to if I'm not ready to tan the hide yet, and oh. I don't have a freezer. That's so ba- why when I sent it into the the professional, she yeah. had said, "Have you salted it already?" Yeah. So okay. the, so. Basically, if I'm not able to get to a hide right away, I freeze it. I'll try to flesh it first because it's it's much easier to get all those fleshy bits off when the hide is freshly off the animal. Uh, if I can't do that right away, I'll just fold it up in a bag and freeze it. So salt would be used if you're out in the bush, you didn't have time to tan it, and didn't have access to a freezer. So that was salt, me, yep. salt, salt's a preservative. So <laughs> okay. you can just you know salt the hell out of the meaty side. And that's going to kind of absorb the moisture, uh, make an environment that's not conducive to bacterial growth. So I really dislike getting salted hides to work (laughs) on. For those of you who are interested, if you're in the tanning hides, if you live in an area where there's deer hunting, pretty much call any butcher and they will sell you hides at anywhere from $5 to $20 a piece. Um, it's really, you know, because most, most places don't do anything with them. Other send them off to the glove factory. So, yeah, so you only salt if you don't have the access to a freezer. And mostly because of salt, it's, it just makes it messier, in my opinion. I know people, that's all they do is salt their hides. But it just kind of makes them messy and gnarly. So, like I said, I always prefer to freeze. I've got neighbors who have a bunch of sheep that they're about to um, slaughter. And they've asked me if I want the hides. So what do, what do I do there if I want to keep the sheep's you know, so, the hair on. So there's a couple different techniques. There, there's wet scraping and there's dry scraping hides. Uh, if I want to keep the, the fur on, I'm going to tack my hide out. I'm going to make a rack for it, poke little holes all around the edges so I can string it out on a rack to stretch it out. Because the fur side I'm leaving alone, right? I want to, I want to keep that as it is. So then my steps are still pretty much the same. I still need to get all the gnarly stuff off, all the flesh, all the fat. Uh, I need to get the membrane off. And then I want to, once that happens, the rack keeps it nice and flat, has a nice, nice good uh, working workspace. And then as it kind of starts to dry, I'll just kind of keep scraping on it to buff those fibers to get all the stuff off. And then you can rub eggs into it on the, on the, the skin side. You can rub brains into it and, and let it dry. And then that'll keep the, the fur on the other side. And then at some point also, you're going to have to wash it, like wash the actual hair because, <laughs> uh, man... Furry side hides will pick up all manner of, of gnarly stuff. I think Lisa washed the sheep hide she did quite a few times, and there's still like little bits of things on it. Poop but there's and stuff, yeah, yeah. They're, they're super nice to lay on though. The sheep hides are nice and nice and fluffy. Okay, talk to me a little bit about. Yeah, no, let's just go right into fire making. So I was reading this book on how to make fire, mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating to me. And it was suggesting I make my own cordage and stuff, which is just, I'm not there yet. But <laughs> there were different pieces. I think there was, well, you know what? Why would I tell you? You tell me. <laughs> Can you, we break it down to, yeah. to how to start a fire with just the resources that you have outside? Sure. Uh, fire making is another one of my, my favorite subjects. So in my research, uh, there's approximately... 18 to 20 primitive fire making techniques and that is fire by friction so that's not flint and steel that's not 
smacking two rocks together to spark. That's actually making some sort of apparatus. So the way friction fire works is, you know, everybody knows what happens when you put your hands together and you rub them quickly, you generate heat, right? So that's essentially what we want to do. So one of the, the, the fire making method I always start with, and probably the one that is, is most familiar to people is the bow drill. So bow drill has a few parts. It's got a bow and a string. And you talked about quarters. This is what it was. This is, yep. this is what it was. Yeah. So you, got, you have a bow and a string. You have a handhold. You have a spindle. And then you have a fire board. And this then, is it? Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so essentially what you do is, uh, and I'll just kind of go through the parts. So your bow, you want to be about armpit to palm, armpit to wrist, somewhere in there. Uh, you want it to be about thumb thick, give or take a little bit. Uh, you want it to have a little bit of flex to it. So you also need a string. Primitive cordage making. Cordage is the art of taking weak individual fibers found in nature and turning them into rope is a whole nother subject in itself. Yeah, I found that. Uh, in a pinch. Uh, I always recommend to people, if you're outdoorsy folk, everybody should have a go bag or some sort of, of gear they always carry with them, a survival kit. Uh, one of the things that cannot tell people enough is carry some freaking rope with you paracord mm-hmm. you got those paracord bracelets nowadays in a pinch you can also use your shoelace so any kind of tough string like that uh your spindle you want it to be about pinky to thumb tip long and approximately thumb thick and then for your fireboard you're essentially just making a small rectangle of wood that's about eight inches long it needs to be long enough to step on to keep it steady and you want it to be about half an inch thick or so and so, what are the ideal, I know that when I was reading this chapter, they were saying there are ideal bits of wood. Like, I think that the bow, I think, do they say poplar would work? So, so the, the, the way it works, so it is, it is possible, and I've tested this personally, it's possible to make a bow drill fire with any piece of dead seasoned wood of any tree that grows on the planet. Oh. Now, obviously, some are going to be harder than others. So hardwoods on the, on the, are... It's pretty difficult to make a fire with, but you can totally do it. Uh, What I tell people is for survival situations or for learning, you want kind of a medium density wood. So cedar is a really good one. Poplar, basswood, cottonwood, maple, kind of not what you think of a medium wood. If you go on the opposite end of the scale, uh, other than cedar, you want to avoid coniferous trees because they have that sap in them. And the pine sap, when it's superheated, can become an accelerant. But until it gets to that point, it can kind of just gum everything up and and make it quite a bit difficult. So I tell people to to stick with the kind of medium woods. Uh, A really good test is if you take your knife or a rock and you expose a piece of wood and if you can make a dent in it with your thumbnail relatively easily chances are that'll be a decent wood for bow drill so uh it's really hard to explain this i know that's why i'm I'm just fascinated (laughs) with how you're going to do this um so you know and something that's true with fire making with any primitive skill as well as with fly fishing technique and form are everything muscle memory is everything getting the right technique and form in your muscle memory is everything uh, that's why we take time when we learn these things to develop the proper technique and form early so that we don't create a bunch of bad habits and then have to break those later on. So essentially, once I have all my parts, I get down on the ground. So your, your front facing foot, if you're, okay, so if you're left handed, the bow will go on your left hand. If you're right handed, it'll go on your right. The foot that is opposite of the hand holding the bow goes over your fireboard and keeps that nice and steady on the ground. 
Your arm holding your handhold goes around your leg, and your elbow locks into your knee, and your wrist locks into your shin. And then you're kind of in this weird position where one leg is up, one knee is on the ground, and you're kind of in a straight line. And then I basically, I put the bow, or the spindle in the bow, and I start cranking back and forth. And remember what I said earlier, when we put our hands together and and rub, we create heat. So when I'm spinning that spindle in the fireboard, first I have to burn my holes in, right? So as you're cranking back and forth, that spindle spinning in the fireboard, you're creating that heat. You're also creating hot wood dust that is rubbing off the spindle and your fireboard equally. And I think that's what surprised me most is when I was reading it, I was waiting for the friction or I was waiting for like the sparks with the rocks or whatever. <laughs> just not, and yeah. then I realized, oh, they're creating a yep. bunch of like sh- um, shavings basically mm-hmm. is what it is. Yeah. So basically what's happening is as you're, you know, you're using your body to provide the downward pressure. Um, your arm is with the bow is spinning the spindle and you're creating that hot wood dust. And also in your fireboard, you have a notch that kind of almost is centered in the hole you've created with your spindle. And that notch services to collect that hot wood dust. So one thing uh, with primitive fire making, you'll quickly learn is that that old saying where you see smoke, you see fire is a bunch of bullshit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you will see a lot of smoke. But that does not mean you've created an ember, a coal. So like what you said, a a misconception about primitive fire making is that I get in the technique and form and do it, and all of a sudden it starts spewing either sparks or flames. It's not not how it happens. (laughs) What you're essentially creating is an ember. Think of it almost like the end of a cigar, that like glowing red coal. So after I've spun my spindle a bunch, I'll create a bunch of smoke. I'll create that hot wood dust. It'll fill that notch. However, I do not have a coal yet. There is a magic temperature I have to get things to where all of a sudden that pile of hot wood dust actually turns into a coal. And that's typically across, an average is about 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Once you get that that wood dust right at the crook of your notch up to that 800 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when it magically somehow just clumps together and forms into a coal. Then you take that coal and you have a little pile of tinder nearby, and tinder is really dry, fibrous plant material, grasses, inner bark of trees, plant down, anything that's got a lot of surface area. I will then take that coal and place it in my tinder bundle, and then that's what I blow into flames. You would also have built yourself a fire structure that's ready to go, so that when I blow that tinder bundle into flames, I can stick my burning tinder bundle right into the core of the fire structure I've made, uh, and that will catch everything on fire. And you got, you got yourself a fire. So out of all the fire-making methods I teach, I always start with the bow drill. Uh, one reason is because it was a very universal fire-making method. Everybody from the Iroquois in the United States to the Egyptians used the bow drill or a variation of it. Second reason why I teach it is if you have enough skill and you have access to trees, you can get it to work pretty much 100% of the time in pretty much 100% of weather conditions. Uh, the third is it's a good starting place to get you thinking about really being good with your technique and form because the bow drill is the most forgiving of crappy technique and form. Okay. <laughs> when you get into things like the hand drill, now one that most people have probably always seen is the hand drill where the person's sitting there and just spinning the, the spindle between their hands. And people think... They look at the bow drill and they see you've got half a dozen parts and you got to be on the ground in this weird position. 
and they automatically associate that with difficulty, and then they look at the handle and they say, "Oh, that's easier. Just spinning it between your hands." That's literally my. Ex- <laughs> that was my exact thought yeah. process. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> so, in the the many years I've been doing this, the many people I've taught to do bow drill, I would say I average a hundred percent success rate at the end of the first day with bow drill, give or take. With the hand drill, in the long time I've been doing this, I can only think of less than 10 people who have gotten a hand drill call on their first day of practicing hand, hand drill. Is it speed? Because with the, with the cordage, you're able to get it to move much, much faster, right? Well, that, yeah, because you're, because you're using your body to provide the downward pressure. The spindle has a lot of surface area, which generates a lot of heat. Uh, the thing with the hand drill is you have to push in and down and still be able to spin it right in order to make it effective. Not only that, but if you look at my hands, mm, so this is from teaching a couple week at, weeks ago with kind of not ideal damp materials, and I was trying to make it work. And even though I have calluses from doing hand drill for the last 35 years, <laughs> I was still got a blister underneath my callus. Oh. So the hand drill is much less forgiving of bad technique and form. It really requires you to be on point with it. Otherwise, you're just going to fail miserably over and over again. So a little bit of history. As far as people can tell, uh, the hand drill came first. So we as humans have been using fire for about 2 million years. We've only had the ability to make fire for the last 200,000 years. So that's a long time where we had to find some place on the landscape where fire was started naturally or we had to borrow it from another group or barter for it. So we had a really, really long time that we were using fire before we could actually make it. So yeah, hand Did drill- you say barter for it? Or are you More likely taking the steal. Oh, okay. uh, who knows? Okay. Who knows? Who knows what our what our early early I, I encourage people, I I always say this tongue in cheek, but uh, I encourage people to, to watch the movie Quest for Fire. While it's not exactly historically accurate, uh, it's also one of Ron Perlman's finest roles, but uh, it really shows the struggles you know our, our way, way back ancestors went through when the fire went out and they didn't have the ability to make it. I think if you look at throughout human history, fire is our, our, our for better or worse, our most important tool. And it's something we still use on a daily basis. Even though people don't have a direct relationship with it anymore, our cars wouldn't work without fire. You know, our, many of us have gas, gas heat or cooking in our house. Our lives wouldn't be what they are without fire. And fire, the, the, the mastery, and I, I hate that word, but our mastery of fire is what allowed us to spread so wide across the globe. And it's been, and still is to this day, one of our most important tools. For a long time, I subscribed to the Backwoodsman magazine. Mm-hmm. Love the Backwoodsman. It's fantastic. And I, l- I learned a lot reading mm-hmm. it. It's, it's definitely, uh, definitely a great, great magazine. One of the issues I was reading, they were talking about brushing our teeth with like root wads. Mm-hmm. Do you think that personal hygiene exists? Was that a thing? Uh, that's a really good question. I de- there is definitely historical evidence, at least from, from what I've read, and once again, this is coming from journals of, of early explorers and, and you know historical references of these groups, that you know, things like dental care, some groups did it, some groups did not. Yeah, there's all sorts of cool ways we can primitively brush our teeth. I don't know if you have them up in BC, I would assume you do, but horsetails, they yeah. go along the banks of the river, it's actually a really ancient plant. So horsetails have a little bit of uh, abrasive silica on them. 
So that was one thing that peoples in this region used not only for cleaning their teeth, but also for polishing up wood really nice was the, was the horsetail. You know, some groups chewed on certain twigs. Uh, you know, you mentioned, mentioned the rootlets. One thing I've noticed, though, is I think part of the reason why our teeth go to crap in, in the world nowadays is a couple reasons. Sure. I th- I th- well, <laughs> sugar is definitely a huge one and bad food. But I also think that we live way longer than, than we were meant to. I mean, if you look at life expectancies over the last three or 400 years, they've, they've doubled and keep going up. And I think, you know, teeth are one of the first things to fail. And there's many, many animals out there that live until their teeth are no longer good and then they die. That's, that's, just, that's just the way it is. But I also think when you're eating a more natural diet, when you're drinking enough water, when you're generally being healthy, you know, I think the whole, the whole tooth care thing, not that it was irrelevant, but it wasn't as necessary to live as it is nowadays with all the, with all the crap we, we stuff in our mouth. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. Next thing I wanted to ask you about is foraging. Mm-hmm. In the Pacific Northwest, there are so many mushrooms. Yep. And let's just talk mushroom specific right now. And I've been learning how to do spore prints, yeah. which is interesting. Do you, well, first of all, let's explain what a spore print is to people listening. So I, I will also preface this by saying that mushrooms are not an area of, of specialty of mine. Um, I know my basics, you know, my oysters and my lobsters. I do have friends who are just, and coworkers of mine who you could show them any mushroom, they'll be able to tell. But you talk about spore printing. So one of the things that's super sketchy about mushrooms uh, that's not so true about edible plants is that, you know, I always tell my students when it comes to wild edible plants that always assume that any edible plant has a poisonous look like. Now, when it comes to mushrooms, the ratio of out of all the mushroom species, the ones that are edible versus the ones that will kill you or make you really sick is a lot greater than with with plants. You know, there are very few plants out there that will kill you quickly. Few of them will make you really sick, and a lot of them are edible. But with mushrooms, that's not always the case. It's a, it's a very slippery slope. So certain mushrooms, the poisonous lookalikes are so many that in order to properly identify, you have to do what's called a spore print, which is essentially where you take a a piece of paper and you, you know, mushrooms are, are spread via their spores and you literally like dab the underside of the mushroom and then you have to count <laughs> the amount of either ribs or, or, or spores or whatever to say that, okay, this is an edible one, but that one that looks identical will kill you or destroy your kidneys. It's like a dust. I've, I've got like yeah. a, I've got a, actually I've got a paper plate that's white and then I've got half mm-hmm. of it is black and it's my go to yeah. and then I do it there so if it's like green spore yeah. mark yeah, I can then, tell if it's white I can tell yeah. so, but, so stuff like that with me you know it's like I said I, I, I took the time to learn the kind of the, the basic mushrooms and especially here now living here there's a lot more here than I had access to back east and I was I was when I got when I first moved to the Pacific Northwest you know last year I was really excited to for the fall mushroom season and it was really bad here this year this fall because it was so dry all summer and the rains didn't come till later than expected. So it was a really poor mushroom year. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting out with some folks who are more knowledgeable in that, that field than I am. I always wonder how many people back at, you know, years and years ago died trying to figure out which were, I mean, you would think that there would be a way for us to smell it or just automatically be turned off uh, by it. You, you bring up an important point, you know, it's something my dad talks about a lot. You know, how many people must have died? I really don't think anybody because 
when we existed in that state, we were so much closer to our instincts and so much closer to everything we shared space with that we just inherently knew. So let me ask you this question. This is the same same way my dad poses it. Let's imagine that there's a, a, a fawn and a doe, right? And it's just before that fawn is about to be weaned and the mother gets hit by a car, gone. Does some mystical force come down and hand that deer a, uh, you know, deer's field guide to edible plants? No, the deer just knows what to eat and what not to eat. How does it know? Instincts. That's right? what I wonder all the time. So, so, that's... so we, we have, we had and have that ability to communicate with these things. The problem is, is our, our modern society and our modern way of life does nothing to, to foster those abilities and, the, and those skills. But I truly believe that we have the ability to tap into that, to learn things that we shouldn't know for one reason or another. So you th- think we still have it, not that we had duh, it? Mm-mm, I think we still have it. Okay. I think, you know, people hear, oh, my intuition says this, or, right? That's that. That's that, that inner voice called inner vision. Yes, we, we definitely have that ability to tap into that. Just like I mentioned earlier with the stalking, when it, you know, staring at a deer and all of a sudden seeing it get uncomfortable, pretty sure anybody listening has gotten a feeling that somebody's watching them at one point. That's because somebody's watching you, whether it's an animal in the woods or somebody on the street. When you get that feeling, a little tickle in the back of your neck, right? Something's up. That just doesn't magically happen for no reason. Mm, that's interesting you know, that you should say that. So Greg Senyo is a friend of mine, and he's mm. also been a guest on the show. Mm-hmm. People know of Greg as being a fly tire, but yep. he's actually a cop. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we, I'm one of those paranoid people who always wonders if like, someone's going to try to kill me. And, and he's great, because so is he. And he was saying that a lot of the reasons why women are oftentimes prone to being victims is because they they have a better voice to tell them like danger danger Mm -hmm. they have a better voice than men do but they're less likely to react or they're slower to react Hmm. because oftentimes they don't want to like offend somebody or you know what i mean they feel like maybe they're going to be rude or whatever it is Mm -hmm. do you see any merit in that yes definitely and you know talk about the 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 not wanting to upset somebody so the reason why us modern folks ignore a lot of those feelings is because we're in the age of the physical where, you know, this is real because it's here in front of me. You know, I can see you sitting there. I can, I can hold and and hold this water bottle. I know it's real, but that doesn't mean that there's not other, other things going on around us that are not real. Right. And we need to learn to, to cultivate and listen to those small voices and not be, afraid if like, oh, you know, maybe I'm going to offend this person if I just walk away, right? If you're getting that feeling, there's a reason for it. Now, explore that reason for it. You know, you might just be a naturally paranoid person, but there's a reason why you're getting it. But yeah, I can see how acting on a lot of those impulses could be seen, uh, you know, deemed to be a little odd in our, in our society when I think the opposite. I, I want people to cultivate those Jedi abilities. Yeah, no, I listen to mine. But, <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> so as crazy as it makes me sound, but hunting's really opened my eyes to that. Mm-hmm. You ever notice when you sneak up on, you know, a bunch of goats or you sneak up on some deer, the buck just goes about his business or the billy goes about his business, mm-hmm. but the nannies are onto you, yep. the does are onto you. Do you think nature has it so that the females are, are more in touch with that? Yeah, well, you know, if you're both in in humankind and animal kind, 
typically, and this isn't, you know, this isn't a blanket statement, but typically, the, you know, the lion's share of rearing and protecting of young fall, falls on the female of the species. So, you know, yes, the, the, it, it does make sense to think that that ability, uh, especially for those types of things, might be more defined in the female versus the male. We can search the, the human populations, we can search the animal kingdoms to see these differences in roles between men and women. And I, I think we're, you know, kind of on a side tangent, we're, we're, we're in this weird kind of outrage era now uh, where everyone's insistent on everything being equal. And while, yes, some of that is amazing and great, I think a lot of it needs to be reevaluated because, yes, males and females of any species, there are differences. There are scientific, evolution-based differences. That's not saying that one is better or worse than the other. It's just what it is. And it, I just find it so funny nowadays that we're trying to redefine all of this stuff for whatever reason. I, I, think it's, I think it's silly, and I think people need to embrace who and what they are in a healthy way. We can be equal, but at the end of the day, we're different. Like, you're going to beat me in an arm wrestling contest, yeah. but I'm going to push out a baby. Yeah. Doesn't, mean you, <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean you should be trying to push out a baby or that no. I should be trying to buff my arms up. We're, we're, we can be exactly the equal, but we're different. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it's like I said, it's not good or bad. It's just it's just how it is. And Life. if we, what what good is expending the energy to try to change something that has been that is the way it is because of millions of years of of whatever? Uh, it's just it's people need to learn how to just spend their energy wisely and and pick arguments that matter, pick debates that actually matter. And don't ignore your stranger danger. Yeah. Foraging, I just want to t- mm-hmm. touch on a couple okay. more things. I'm really fascinated lately with what I can turn into jelly. <laughs> Fireweed jelly, mm-hmm. you know, obviously mint jelly. Can you just turn any like, rosehip jelly? Can you turn anything into jelly with enough sugar? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah, you can. You can uh, one thing I've learned in, in my years of, of kind of exploring these things and with people is you can pretty much ferment anything and turn it into alcohol, and yeah, you could pretty much turn anything. There's a way to preserve just about about everything out there. Yeah, and sugar is is the great equalizer when it when it comes to stuff like that. You know, whether you know our ancestors were making rosehip jelly, that's up for debate. But once again, you know, and I, I said this early on in the first part of the interview, I am wholeheartedly behind and supportive of anything that gets people outside in nature, exploring, learning, you know, because the more we learn about the natural world, the more connected we are to it. And then when it comes down the line, the less likely we're going to stand by while that gets destroyed in order for something some nefarious reason or some some BS reason, and that's that's one of the reasons why we've allowed our world to go to shit because we're so disconnected from it. We don't see many of us don't see the giant garbage pits and the the, the pollution in the river. But as as uh, going out fishing and hunting, you know, we see that stuff constantly. Not only that, but just you talk about the the change in the climate. You know, I remember as a kid on the east coast having snow on the ground all winter now it's just not like that anymore you know i was talking to my my buddy tony around here he said you know until 10 years ago we would actually get some rain in the summer and it wasn't always under threat of everything burning and now we go 60 80 90 days without rain 
whether that's caused by humans or the natural cycle or both. Who really knows? But, you know, I, I generally tend to believe that <laughs> at least part of it is, is our fault. And we should we should try to try to do something about that. But yeah, you know, well, just real quick back to foraging. You know, I talked about how these skills and foraging is one of them really validate themselves when we use them to feed ourselves, when we use them in a very real way. And foraging is one of those amazing things that just about anyone can do. You know, it always blew my mind that, you know, a lot of people spend thousands of dollars a year trying to eradicate, you know, weeds from their lawns. And that weed, whether it's dandelion or plantain or this, that, and the other thing, there's a good chance that that weed you're trying to get rid of has much higher nutritional value than, than the inbred crappy produce that you're buying at the store. There are so many great, wonderful wild foods available to us. And this, this is not even talking about hunting. This is just gathering plants, uh, plant material. There are so many things out there that are so wonderful and delicious, and most people know absolutely nothing about it. And the reason why, and that, I love that you brought that up, because I don't leave the house without a, a book. Mm-hmm. I've got a book that I carry with me everywhere. People are like, oh, well, I've never seen that in the grocery store. But you've never seen it in the grocery store because it would cost too much yeah. to hire people to go out and oh, pick you, them. You, say, you know, one I constantly talk about is dandelion. You know, it grows everywhere. Uh, you know, you can find dandelion in some grocery stores and you're going to pay anywhere from 10 to 12 bucks a pound for it, you know, when you can go in most yards around around the country and Come to and, my place, and please. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, that's just one of a few, you know, there's, there's quite well, a few. Well, and stinging common. nettle, you know, I, I, eat, I consume mm-hmm. a lot of stinging nettle, fiddleheads. Yep. You know, people are like, oh, if those little things are so tasty, <laughs> yeah, they're tasty. Well, why don't I see them in the store? Because it would cost too much. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there's stores you can you can buy pickled fiddleheads, but you're going to sure. pay like $30 for a jar of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, nettle, you know, it's a great example of a of an amazing plant with multiple uses. So nettle is really, really tasty. It also, some of the, the best rope uh, that we can make in nature go, is from nettle fiber. Do you, do you need it to be dried or just? Uh, yeah, so typically anytime you're going to turn plant or tree material into cordage, you, you want the, the material to be dry. And there's only one part of the plant that's good for cordage. It's basically the, the fibers that keep the plant rigid. So your goal is to kind of remove all of that the stuff that's not good for cordage, and then you're left with the fibers. And then it's a really simple technique called the reverse wrap to, to turn that into good, strong, usable rope. It looked really intimidating to me when I was looking at it. it it's, I always tell people that it's one of the simplest things to do once you figure it out. But just the, the, the kind of very small finger movements can be difficult for some people. You know, the, 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 the easiest way I can describe the finger mo- movement is uh, tying a, an improve, or a clinch knot on a MEP spinner. When you like pull your, pull your tag end up and you make your loop and then you spin, the, you, you spin that little barb on the thing to put your twists in the line. Like, it's essentially the technique you're using for making cordage is you're, you're spinning fibers away and then grabbing the bottom and spinning them towards you and you're kind of twining them. You're putting tension on the individual groups of fibers and then them wrapping around each other is what keeps it, turns it into rope. Now, this is one of the classes that you teach. Mm-hmm. What, are the, what do you teach? You've obviously got fire making, tanning. So, yeah, so basically I teach all aspects of, uh, I do separate the two, uh, I, wilderness survival and primitive living skills. So I really dislike the term survival because, you know, it's, uh, there's this huge misconception that our ancestors were always just teetering on the brink of life and death. And we're always miserable and emaciated. 
which nothing could be further from the truth. You know, our ancestors lived pretty damn well. And if these skills did not work and work really well, none of us would be sitting here at this point in our space and time. Every one of our ancestors used these skills at one point or another and used them perfectly. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. It's amazing a lot of the, 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 the misconceptions that come with the word survival. Or you say, oh, I practice survival skills. They think you have a bunker and m- a bunch of machine guns. Or they think you like to go out and torture yourself. That's a real... No, so, so I, I bought a DVD ages mm-hmm. ago on survival. Mm-hmm. And it was literally this guy being like, you need to stock up on this in your bunker. And, you know, doomsday. And <laughs> talking like, the you know, it's like zombies are going to invade yeah. town. So, yeah, no, you're right. There's definitely a different definition on survival. So, you know, to me... You know, if you get lost in the woods, right, as soon as you have a water, have some, have the ability to hydrate yourself, you have some sort of shelter built and a fire going, all of a sudden, to me, you are no longer in so much of a survival situation. And that's one of the reasons I talked about earlier about why I really despise a lot of the TV shows about survival nowadays, is it's always presented uh, humans in nature in an adversarial relationship. When we're not meant to be adversaries with nature, we are meant to be partners with nature. And that's just why I, I, I don't like a lot of them. But uh, That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And all that stuff does is it further kind of demonizes nature. And, you know, all of a sudden nature is this thing to be feared, and, and it's all a bunch of crap. Uh, you know, nothing could nothing could be further from the truth. So, yeah, I really dislike the, the, the term survival. Uh, that's why I generally like to use earth skills or primitive skills. Now, yes, of course, there are survival situations. You're, you're backpacking and you get lost. You know? You're going to be in a survival situation for a little while until you don't panic and really analyze your needs. Or you know, any one of a million different uh, events happen that all of a sudden you, are, you, know, you don't have ready access to your bubble of safety, security, and comfort that you normally exist in. Yes, you're in a, in a survival situation, but... Our ancestors were not constantly in a survival situation. We don't need to look at it that way. It was a much more intimate relationship than that. It wasn't always a, a, a struggle, you know, f- to keep alive every moment of every day. <laughs> what else do you teach? Uh, so, yeah, so basically I teach all areas of, of this is what I was starting to say before, of primitive living skills and wilderness survival. So fire making, wild edible plants, uh, shelter building. You know, tanning animal skins, making arrowheads, making bows, making bas- <laughs> making baskets, you know, tons of different primitive weapons. I teach all sorts of, another one of my favorite skill sets are what I call the throwing arts, so throwing weapons, so yeah. throwing sticks, tomahawks, addle-addles, those yeah, I was going to ask you things. about that. Why would someone need to throw a tomahawk? Is it to kill things? You know, everyone associates tomahawks with Native Americans mm-hmm. when... You know, tomahawks were really kind of when the French first came to the to the New World. Uh, the kind of belt hatchet tomahawk was a really common trade good. So no, that was more of a, a utilitarian tool that did find its way into the battlefield. And you you know you could hunt with it. There are better tools to hunt with. But yeah, I really love the throwing weapons, especially throwing sticks. It's something I'm been doing a really long time, and I'm. I'm really good at and have have hunted quite a few different animals with them. When you say st- you're talking spears, nope, I'm talking. Uh, well, you, know, you, you spend time in Australia, so you think rabbit stick of the Aboriginal use. They look kind of like boomerangs, but they don't come back to you. They're, oh, you essentially yeah. throw the stick at an animal in a really, really 
amazingly effective hunting tool. Once again, if you have the proper skills, you know, I'm not encouraging people to go out there with any old stick and try to take down an animal because it's, you think, you think throwing stick, oh, it's just throwing a stick. No, there is technique and form and skill and experience that goes into making that an effective hunting tool. Which take on spearing? Uh, I was not going to ask you that, but I'm going to Spearing and hunting or fishing or both? No, I'm sorry. People are probably curious about fishing, but no, hunting. Yeah, so I, I've seen some videos of uh, you know guys hunting hunting buffalo, water buffalo. I think they do it over in Australia, right? There's, you can go spear hunting there. Um, once again, if somebody is effective with their tool and the animal is not suffering, that's fine with me. The problem becomes is if... You know, any old Joe Schmo who's got the money says, oh, I'm going to go kill this whatever with a spear. And they've never thrown a spear. They don't know how to throw a spear. And they end up injuring an animal. You know, that that's where I have the issue. As far as hunting with it, if you are proficient with your tool and can quickly end that animal's life and it's legal where you are, you know, I say go for it. So two questions for you. I know that you're really big into mm-hmm. camo. Yep. Can you tell me your thought process on that? Sure. And then this kind of ties into the whole... You know, when I talked about with compound bows earlier, hunting is incredibly, I wouldn't say incredibly popular nowadays, but they've figured out a way to market all sorts of products that have to do with hunting. And and we've uh, seen an explosion of camo clothing in the last five, ten years. Most of it... Even in fishing. I mean, there's sky camo. Yeah. All camo. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. So, you know, I always laugh because uh, one dude I know who kills more deer than just about anybody sits in his tree stand with a with a lumberjack red and black shirt and smokes two packs of cigarettes up there and he'll kill more deer than people with the fanciest high-tech camo. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of camo clothing out there. Most of it is designed for sitting completely still in either a tree stand or a ground blind. And it works great for that. But when you're trying to be dynamic and get up and move around, it doesn't function so well. From a purely clothing standpoint, Typically, I only wear wool when I hunt for a few reasons. Uh, wool is, it'll keep you warm even when it's wet. It's really quiet when brush brushes over it. Uh, it absorbs light and doesn't reflect it like a lot of modern hunting gear. Even if it has a good camo pattern on it, chances are it's printed on a, on a, a shiny fabric and it reflects light. So I would much rather have like a solid earth tone setup that matches the earth tones in my area than any camo pattern out there. Another thing I do do is I also teach people how to make their own camo patterns on their skin or on their clothing using clay or mud or soil. And one of the beautiful things about that is, you know, when we buy a camo pattern at a store nowadays, it's for a specific region. But when we use natural materials to create camo patterns, we can make a camo pattern that is specific to where we are at that moment in space and time, not some general overall region. So it's it's really amazing for that. What um, about bug repellent? If you're using clays and stuff. It was interesting. When I took history in school, mm-hmm. they were saying that one of the things that deterred people from moving to Canada were the bugs. <laughs> or that was the major yeah. reason why people didn't want to come here from Europe. Would clay and stuff help to keep, and mud help to keep the bugs away? Definitely. Any coating like that you're putting on your body is a deterrent to insects. Uh, on the note of insects, another thing I've noticed is that the more time we spend in nature, the less the bugs bother us. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know if this is something you found, but when we spend time, a good amount of time out in the bush and we're 
kind of wholly existing in that wild space. I've noticed that the, the insect, the bothersomeness of the insects go way down. And then when somebody new comes to camp and all of a sudden they're being swarmed, a couple of days go by, it lets off. I firmly believe that just kind of being present for a good amount of time in the woods, uh, the insects will, will leave you alone more more than when you first start. But yeah, also things like clay and mud also, you know, puts a layer over our skin. Imagine being a mosquito and instead of having nice soft flesh to stick your little mosquito stabber into, all of a sudden you got to go through a bunch of layers of clay and mud. It's, you know, probably not as tasty. Another thing that's really nice about natural materials for camo like charcoal is it's, uh, you know, one of the most frustrating things, especially about hunting deer is the controlling your scent. Uh, and when we use charcoal, charcoal can help to, to kind of mask our mask our human odor a little bit. Oh, what about our faces? Should I be painting my face? It, once again, it really depends on your situation. Now, when I'm trying to be up close and personal and stalk on the ground and get really close, yeah, I try to camo up as much as possible to try to break up any kind of resemblance to that, that human outline and form. Because, you know, if I'm wearing camo everything and then my face is sticking out, Right? The animal or whatever might not see the camel pants on my body, but they're going to see this like weird pink <laughs> floating oval. face. Yeah. My last question for you is, uh, is a fun one. Do you believe in Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny you bring this up. Uh, I actually have a really good friend who's a bass fisherman who we, we've had lengthy discussions about Bigfoot. And, you know, I was asked him, I said, well, if, there, if there's Bigfoot, how come we don't find any bones? And he goes, "Oh, well, didn't you know that the uh, you know the porcupines and, and the Bigfoot have a have a, a symbiotic relationship, and the porcupines eat the Bigfoot bones to get rid of them?" Uh, so, do I believe in Bigfoot? Say yes and no. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of of myths and legends, and I think if there is a Bigfoot, it's more of a spiritual being, a protector of the forest, than an actual physical being itself. You know, take that take that how you will. Have I ever personally like seen Bigfoot tracks or anything like that? No, I haven't. But I will also say, say this: you know that most people are incredibly unaware, and I've I've seen some of these like hunting for Bigfoot shows. And if I want to offer you, if any of you are listening, if you're trying to hunt Bigfoot in the woods, don't go into the woods being loud with a bunch of cameras because <laughs> if there is such thing as Bigfoot. They're much more aware than you are, and they're probably long gone or hiding right behind that log you just clumsily stepped over. So I like to think that there is still some mysteries that that we know nothing about out there. So I'll choose to believe. I think the biggest mystery we know nothing about right now is, ironically, ourselves. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I hope that this has been thought-provoking enough to get some people to really look at themselves and see how they can become more connected. Yes, Please, go outside. Get out from behind the computer. Quit arguing with each other over politics. And go spend some time in the woods. Sit in the woods. Listen to the woods. And you will be a much better, happier human being. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. iTunes.